Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Father God, as we come to your word this morning, we, we confess along with the Apostle Paul that all Scripture is breathed out by you. It is the very breathed out living word of God. And so we pray now that as we come to your word that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, I confess that I need your help this morning. I am weak, but your word is powerful, it is alive, and so I ask that you would do your work in us this this morning, that you would speak by your spirit, and that we by that would be changed, and we would behold your glory, we would behold the glory of your son, Jesus. So would you come this morning and work and speak, we ask, for his glory and our good. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, let me ask you to go ahead and take it and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're looking at verses 2 to 16 this morning. Last week, we sort of began a series within a series. We have been in the letter of 1 Timothy together, and we wanted to slow down and we wanted to consider more carefully the biblical teaching on gender roles of men and women. And so last week we began, if you remember back at the very beginning, we looked at creation in the fall in Genesis 1 to 3 in order to establish these God-given gender roles in the home and in the church. But this week we're going to step out again of the letter of 1 Timothy in order to look at another passage where Paul says something Uh, Very similar in order to help us, I think, understand better God's order in the home, in the church, for men and women. So I know you just sat down, but let me ask you if you would please to stand with me as we honor together the public reading of God's word if you're able. Beginning in verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything. And maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have a cover on his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it not proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. You can be seated this morning.
To be honest, I feel a little bit over my head. Pun intended. Took me all week to come up with that one. Books and articles and doctoral dissertations and volumes have been written on this particular passage here. In fact, if you were to do just a little bit of investigation on your own into that one word, head, there in verse 3, it would send you reading for days on end. So, needless to say, verses 2 to 16 are a challenging passage, and they are a challenged passage. They're a challenging passage, and they're a challenged passage. Now, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, first of all, this is a challenged passage. It's a passage that is challenged in our world today. I think you can see why if you were to put this passage in the hands of, say, a feminist, or you were to put it maybe even just in the hands of the average person who is swimming in the streams of our culture, this passage, it would seem like the height of misogyny. It would seem demeaning toward women. In fact, in verse 3, notice Paul says there, the head of a wife is her husband. That statement alone is countercultural. It is seen as backward. It is seen as evil. It is seen as a relic of the past. And so, this passage is challenged by feminists, challenged by egalitarians who would say there are no gender roles. It's challenged by most of the modern world today. This passage, though, it would also be challenged by the transgender movement today as well because Paul, he's going to talk here about the importance of not blurring the gender lines between men and women. In fact, if you notice down there in verses 14 and 15, he's going to talk about how important it is that men look like men and women look like women. I mean, how countercultural is that? So for all these reasons, this is a very challenged section of Scripture, but these are also very challenging verses as well. There's some real exegetical difficulties here. For example, what does Paul mean in verse 3 when he says the head of a wife is her husband? What is this head covering? Is it a, is it a veil? Is it a shawl? Is it just her hair as some would argue here? Or look there in verse 10. What does it mean for a woman to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels? I still don't know if I know what that means. Can men not have long hair? Can women not have short hair? Must women still wear head coverings in worship today? I think you can see why this is a challenging set of verses. And so while I may not be able to answer every issue here in this passage, I, I do think that one of the most important things to remember here is this. That every single passage of the Bible comes wrapped in a certain cultural, historical context. Every passage of the Bible. In other words, when God spoke through the biblical authors, He spoke into a certain historical, cultural setting. Whether that be in the ancient Near East or that be in the Greco-Roman world in the first century, he spoke into a cultural setting. He spoke into history. He spoke into time. He did not speak into a cultural vacuum. No. And what can be challenging in reading and interpreting the Bible is knowing how to handle those cultural elements. Because if we aren't careful, as I said a few weeks ago, we can go to one of two extremes here. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, one extreme would be rigid literalism. We take this very literally, and so we end up as a church next Sunday demanding all women wear head coverings to worship. Or the other extreme, instead of looking at the timeless truth here, would be to throw it all out and to say that none of it applies. It only applies to that specific context. It's, it's just cultural. It's just time-specific. It's labeled as irrelevant. 
And by doing so, what we end up doing is we end up stripping the Bible of its authority. And neither of those options are good. So what do we need to do? Well, here's what we need to do. We need to discern between the timeless truth of God's revelation in the text, which never changes, and the cultural expression of that truth that does change. What is cultural? What is timeless? And so this morning, here in these verses, we're going to attempt to pull out those timeless truths from their cultural expressions, in this case, head coverings, in order to understand what God would say to us today as it relates to gender roles, because we want to make sure that these timeless truths are being embraced and they're being lived out as men and women for the glory of God. Now, before we dive in here, since we're jumping right into the middle of this letter, allow me to just set the context here. First, allow me just to address the literary context. What's going on in this letter? In chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 11, it's clear here now that there is a transitioning that, that is taking place. Paul is shifting gears here because up to this point, he has been working through various questions and issues that have been raised by the Corinthians and what he knows to be going on in this letter. And so he's, he's dealing with a bunch of issues that have come up, things like factions and divisions in the church or scandalous sins or lawsuits or marriage and singleness and meat sacrifice to idols, all of these different topics. And needless to say, this is a church with a lot of dysfunction going on. But here now in chapter 11, he turns to address issues and problems related to corporate worship. Look there in verse 2. He says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. It seems that verse 2 here, it functions as really an introduction for all of chapters 11 to 14. And Paul, he begins here, notice, by commending the Corinthians, remembering him and the traditions that he's delivered to them. And I think, first of all, the gospel message of first importance. But then, in verse 3, notice the but there at the beginning, but I want you to understand, seems to indicate there's a bit of a contrast now with what's going to follow. And these verses now, along with much as chapters 11 to 14, are examples then of how the Corinthians were at some point holding to Paul's teaching, but at other points they were not. They were not holding fast to what he had taught, and thus they are in need here of some correction. But the context here of chapter 11, notice, is when the church gathers together corporately. And we know that because from here what Paul's going to do is he's going to go on to address issues related to the Lord's Supper. When the church gathers, you see it there in the end of chapter 11. And then in chapters 12 to 14, he's going to talk about spiritual gifts and how they function within the church, namely tongues and prophecy. So the issue here is about when the church gathers together corporately. And specifically, how men and women are to worship in the public gathering. And even more specific than that, the role of women in the context of corporate worship. So what exactly then was the issue that's going on? Well, it seems that the women of this church were inappropriately uncovering their heads in the worship service. Look there, verse 5. But every wife who prays or prophesies, and I think he means in the corporate gathering, with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. Verse 6. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut off her hair. Verse 10, a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. So apparently, notice, the women of the church, as they're praying, as they're prophesying in the gathering, were uncovering their heads. 
And Paul says, in verse 6, this is a disgrace. She is dishonoring her head, verse 5. So in other words, what is, this wasn't proper behavior for a woman, a godly woman in the context of co- co- corporate worship. No, she, she must cover her head. Now why? Why must she cover her head? Why was it inappropriate for a woman to have her head uncovered in the corporate Gathering, And this is where we get here into the cultural context of the letter and of the first century. Now, time doesn't allow me. You could do a lot of study into first century Greco-Roman Corinth if you wanted to, although I'm not sure how much that would really help you. But it seems that in this culture, a woman wearing her head covered... And specifically here in the church gathering, it demonstrated her submission to male leadership and to her husband. And in contrast, for a woman then to have her head uncovered in worship, it revealed a rejection, a refusal of submitting to male leadership, whether that be in the home or that be within the church. And apparently, this was also one of the chief signs of sexual immodesty of her day as well. And therefore, to cover her head, it was a sign of submission. It was a sign of modesty. It was a sign of her affirming male leadership. And many scholars would also contend that not unlike what's going on in 1 Timothy and not unlike what is going on in our own day as well, there seems to be some sort of women's liberation movement that was happening in Corinth. And the women were throwing off these traditional female practices. And so as a result, this cultural movement now was creeping into the church. And the church was beginning to conform to the the culture. And so women were no longer covering their heads in corporate worship. worship. And And thus thus Paul, he he turns turns here to address address these problems. problems. He must deal with this for the good of the church and for the glory of God. And so I think that what in many ways in this passage could be very confusing, let me just state as simply as I can the main point of these verses. Here they are. Here it is. Paul wants us to see the timeless, unchanging, transcultural principle of male leadership in the home and in the church. That the church is to be led by men. And even our corporate gatherings should demonstrate the proper roles of men and women. God has called men to lead and He's called women to be in glad submission to that leadership in the home and in the church and these gender distinctions between men and women, they must be upheld, they must be clear, and they must be celebrated. And he gives here, notice, three arguments for why. Three arguments for why we must embrace this proper submission of women to male leadership in the home and the church and the importance of these gender distinctions. And I think what you're going to see is that as foreign as this sounds... It's actually very relevant and can be applied to our own church and our own culture today. So let's look at these three arguments, and then afterward, at the very end, I'm going to come back and give some contemporary application for us. So first, argument number one, I want you to notice the honoring of headship. The honoring of headship in verses 3 to 6. So in verse 3, Paul states here, notice from the very outset, Perhaps this is the key verse here, the timeless principle, verse 3. This is what is unchanging. And then in verses 4 to 6, he takes that timeless principle and he applies it to his own cultural setting. So again, it's important we're asking the question here, what is timeless and what is cultural? Notice first the timeless principle. The timeless principle, verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, 
and the head of Christ is God. So here's the timeless principle, and the principle we see here is one of headship. Headship. In fact, just notice how that word head is repeated 11 times just in verses 3 to 6, which leads us to ask the question, okay, what is headship? What does it mean that the head of every man is Christ, that the head of a wife is her husband, and that the head of Christ is God? Well, I told you, that word head, it is hotly debated, contested by scholars today. Most egalitarians would say that this word head, it means source. So, the woman, in other words, originates from the man. She she, she has her origin from the man, the source. He's the source. While complementarians would say it means authority. And that's exactly what I think Paul means here. He means authority. He means leadership. And the reason is because this is how the Bible most often uses this word of head as authority, as leadership. For example, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18, we see that Christ is the head of the universe and the church. Well, yes, of course, we're saying that He is the source of those things. Those originate from Him. But in the context, He's saying, no, no, Christ has authority over the universe. He has authority over the church, the context would show us, as the head. Or in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22, if Remember the classic text on husbands and wives where it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. He's the leader. So headship, it means leadership. It means, it means authority. And by the way, just so we're clear, this headship, men, it is meant to be a selfless, sacrificial, loving headship. It is a nurturing headship. Any, any other distortion of that is not biblical headship. But it means leadership. It means authority. And in the same way, we should take notice here, verse 3, as Paul's saying here that Christ has authority over mankind. He's the head of every man. So also the man has authority over, over the woman as her head, he says, and God, the Father, also has authority over God, the Son, as His head as well. I'll come back to that in a moment. So it seems here the head means the leader, leadership, authority, which is why in verse 10, a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Headship means authority. Now, one other interpretive challenge we've got to deal with here. The scholars debate, and you'll probably see it there in your various English translations. The debate is whether or not in verse 3, notice it should be translated husband and wife or man and woman. Because the word can mean either. In fact, you probably have a footnote there in your Bible telling you that. So the ESV, that's the translation I preach from, notice in verse 3 it says the head of a wife is her husband, whereas later it translates the same word as man and woman. It's the very same word. But I think that perhaps a better translation is to stick with woman and man, which I think is what the New American Standard does as well. So verse 3 reads, the head, it should read, the head of a woman is man. Now why is that important? Why does that matter? Well, because that possessive pronoun there, her, her husband, it isn't there in the original language. The, the ESV supplies that for you. It's making an interpretive decision for you. Because more literally, it should read, the head of a woman is man. Plus, the context here is the corporate worship gathering of the church. And so he's not so much talking about marriage, although that applies here, I think, but it's much bigger than just marriage. I think Paul's point here, again, is that 
of male leadership, male headship in the church. That the elders, the teachers, the leaders in the church should be men and not women. Same as in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. Remember, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first. So there, just as here, Paul is saying the elders, the teachers, the leaders in the church publicly should be men. And therefore, a person's gender matters when it comes to the roles we play within the church and within the home. Men are to be leading, and women are to be in glad submission to that leadership because God has ordained male leadership in the home first and in the church second. And beloved, this principle is timeless. It is all cultures. It is all times. It is all of history. There is a timeless order that God has established here. One of headship and submission. And the amazing thing here in verse 3 is that not only is this order rooted in creation, as we saw last week, and we'll see here again in a moment, but Paul, notice, he roots it even further back than creation. In fact, he goes all the way back, notice here, to eternity past. Look there, verse 3. The head of every man is Christ. So Christ possesses all authority over every man. The head of a woman is man. Male leadership in the church and in the home. And then notice this phrase. The head of Christ is God. Now, if theology were a swimming pool, brothers and sisters, we are swimming in the absolute deepest end of the pool. This is the ocean. This is the Mariana Trench. Paul is describing the doctrine of the Trinity. And he's describing the subordination, the submission of God the Son to God the Father. The head, the authority of Christ is God. Wow. What's Paul doing here? He is appealing to the Trinity. He is appealing to the Trinitarian nature of the Godhead in order to show these distinct and differing roles of men and women in the church and in the home. And to say that men are to lead, to say that men are to have authority in the church and in the home, that order, Paul says, is patterned after God himself. Oh my. That he is the one God, one in essence, who exists in three distinct and equal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Father has authority over the Son. He directs the Son. He's the head, he says. And the Son willingly submits to his Father. And yet, they are essentially equal. And yet, functionally, they have different roles. Oh, this is a glorious thing. You know why? Because in fulfilling these roles of authority and submission within the Trinity, beloved, our salvation was accomplished. That the Father sent the Son into the world. And the Son, He perfectly obeyed the Father's will and He accomplished all the Father's work and He died on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of all those the Father had given to Him. And so the different roles, the different function here, it doesn't mean a difference in equality or essence. No, the Son is the very same essence as the Father. He is equally God, but He is a different role. He has a different function as the second member of the Trinity that is in no way inferior. That's deep. And in a similar way in verse 3, Paul says, the man 
is the head of the woman. They are equals. But there is a God-ordained order of headship and submission. There is an eternal order, ordering in the Trinity, in, the, in, in even accomplishing the plan of salvation here, our redemption as members of the Godhead, and there's an ordering of men and women in the church. They're equal, and then they're different. And these distinct roles are rooted not only in creation, they are rooted in the very nature of God Himself. This order reflects God. You see how big that is? But then in verses 4 to 6, look there. He takes that principle and he applies it to his own cultural context. Verse 4, he applies it to men. And then in verses 5 and 6, he applies it to women. And he reasons from this timeless principle that women should cover their heads and men should not. But first, what is this head covering? What is the covering he's talking about? Well, I think there's really two possibilities. The first here is he's talking about some kind of physical head covering. This is some kind of cloth or garment-like thing on the head. The prayer shawl could be. That's one possibility. The other possibility is Paul is objecting here to a specific kind of hairstyle. So perhaps the woman, these women in the church, they were wearing their hair down when the normal culturally acceptable practice would be for them to wear it up in a bun on the top of their heads like a covering. So it's one of those two, but I, I think that he's talking here about an actual cloth. He's talking here about an actual shawl that they would wear on their heads because one reason, notice he says in verse 4, it was he wants the men to pray with their heads uncovered. So if he were talking about hair, then this would mean what? Well, men need to be bald. And some of you men I see are there, and some of you are on your way there. But I, I think he's actually talking about an actual garment that they would wear on their heads. But he's arguing that this timeless principle gets worked out as men and women properly adorn themselves in corporate worship. So that adorning here, notice it reflects this timeless principle of headship and submission. Now just remember, this principle gets worked out in different ways in different cultures. And the reason I know that is because I don't see any of the ladies in this room wearing a prayer shawl, which would be okay if you did. So we, we get this. In every culture, there are certain customs that are acceptable for men and for women. But the principle here is that men should clearly be men and leading the church, leading the home, and women should clearly be women. Invisible, glad submission to that godly male leadership. So he applies it then both to the men and the women. Look there at verses 4 to 6. He applies it first to the men. Verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered, dishonors his head. So he takes the principle and he applies it to men. And for a man to pray or prophesy with his head uncovered in corporate worship or covered with a prayer shawl, with a head covering, it would be a disgrace. Why? Verse 5, because he dishonors his head. If he covers his head, he dishonors his head. It's a play on words. Because according, who's his head? According to verse 3, it's Christ. He dishonors Christ if he covers his head. And then he takes the principle and he applies it to women. Look there. Verses 5 and 6. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Now, who's her head? Oh, yes. Yes. Ultimately, it's Christ. He's the head of every man. But more immediately, it's her, I think, 
husband as well as male leadership within the church. It is the same, Paul says, as if her head were shaven. For if a woman will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a woman to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Now what in the world is Paul saying? Here's what he's saying. He's saying if she isn't going to wear a head covering in worship, then she might as well go ahead and shave her head off. Her hair off. In fact, that kind of behavior, having your head uncovered in worship, it was just as a shocking, it was just as appalling in Paul's day as if her head were completely shaved. Which would be a sign of her rejecting her femininity and moving toward forcefully masculinity. Why? Let's ask why. Why in verse 4 was it shameful for men to cover their heads in worship? The answer is because that's what women do. That's what women wear. It would not be masculine to do that. And thus, to do so as well for, would be for a man to depict himself as a woman. And in the same way, why is it shameful in verses 5 and 6 for a woman to uncover her head? Here's the answer. That's what men do. She would be acting like a man. So in other words, it's blurring the gender lines. It is distorting and confusing the distinct roles of men and women. But when a man comes to worship with his head uncovered, and when a woman worships with her head covered, it actually reflects the proper gender distinctions between men and women, and it exemplifies this principle. It honors this principle of headship and submission. Now, everything in me right now wants to jump to application, but I'm going to wait to the end. But I think you can see where we're going here. But this is Paul's first argument for why there should be male leadership in the home and in the church and these proper distinctions between men and women. It's patterned. It's a pattern of headship and submission. It's honoring that pattern. But then look at verses 7 to 12. He turns to a second argument. And he moves here from headship to the created order. Argument number two, the created order. Verses 7 to 12. It seems, notice, Paul is hearkening back here to Genesis chapter 2 which is exactly, if you remember what we saw last week in 1 Timothy 2 as well, where Moses in Genesis chapter 2, if you remember, he emphasizes there that the man was created before the woman and that the woman was created from the man. In fact, I told you last week, I think this is one of the reasons why God gave us Genesis chapter 2. Because Otherwise, if we didn't have Genesis chapter 2, we might assume from Genesis chapter 1 that men and women were created at the same time. But Moses wants us to see that man was created first, he was created before the woman, and the woman was created from the man. Why? Because the order matters. This is by God's design. It's the very same reason in 1 Timothy 2 where he says this is why women can't teach men or exercise authority uh, in the office of elder in the church. Why? Because Adam was formed first. And it's the very same reason here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is God's created order. Look there, verses 7 to 12. He no notice Paul addresses here the man and the woman's created order in verses 7 to 12. And then he's going to talk about their interdependence in verses 11 and 12. First, notice their created order, verses 7 to 10. Look there, verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Now, let's be very clear here what Paul is not saying. 
he isn't saying that women aren't created in the image of God. He isn't saying that she is not created in the image and glory of God. He is not saying that women are not or are less than men. No, Paul knows Genesis. He knows Genesis 1.27 that we read last week where God created man and woman in his image. Both men and women are equally made in the image of God. Equal in worth, equal in dignity, equal in importance and personhood. That's not what he's saying. What is he saying then in verse 7? Well, I think this is his inspired commentary on Genesis chapter 2 where we see God creates man first from the dust, Genesis 2.7. Then he creates the woman from the rib of the man, Genesis 2.21. Because notice what he says in verse 8. For, here's why a man ought not to cover his head. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. In other words, He's talking about the created order. And that because the woman came from the man, God made her out of the man, she is now meant to reflect that created order and how she honors, or he says, glory to the man. She is the glory of man, he says. So she's to show honor to the man by covering her head. Well, the man shows honor, glory to God, by not doing so. That's what he means in verse 7. And by covering her head, she is also demonstrating her created role as a helper. Because look there at verse 9. Neither was the man created for woman, but woman for man. So Again, he's going to Genesis 2.18, where we see that the Lord said, It's not good that man should be alone. I'm going to make him a helper fit for him. So ladies, you have a very unique gifting. You are created, you are called by God to function as a helper, as a helpmate. And so you have men leading and you have women helping and supporting and aiding and affirming that male leadership. And in this first century cultural context, one of the ways they demonstrated that was by wearing head coverings in worship. In fact, look there at verse 10. This is why a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And so by doing so, she's demonstrating her glad submission to her husband, her glad submission to male leadership in the church, and she's honoring God's created order. Now, I know you want to ask me, about angels. What about the angels? You've been waiting. I don't know. Nor do I really have time. So let me just say what I think Paul means in three statements. Angels are here with us now. I don't mean to freak you out. They're here right now with us. Hebrews chapter 1 says they're ministering spirits sent out to serve the elect. God's elect. They're here right now. And I know, number two, angels participate and assist in worship. They are worshiping with us now. And thus, I think Paul means he wants, angels want to see this created order maintained and established and upheld in the church as we worship. Because of the angels. I don't know. Verses 7 to 10, though. Look there. He says that in the church, there are to be clear distinctions between men and women because this is God's created order. This is God's ordained roles. But lest some take Paul's words out of context, they misconstrue Paul's meaning here to say that we don't need women. And men are superior. Women are inferior. Notice in verses 11 and 12. He talks about the interdependence of the man and the woman. Their interdependence. Look there at verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, so he makes a qualifying statement here. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, 
nor man of woman, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. What is he saying here? Men and women need each other. That's what he's saying. They need each other. There, there is this beautiful balance God intends between men and women. It is a wonderful thing to be created as a man, and it is a wonderful thing to be created as a woman. And so he says that men and women need each other. They are not independent, he says, of one another. And he makes that case, notice, by appealing to their origin. Look there, verse 12. For as woman was made from man. This is the very first woman. This is Eve, who came from the body of a man. Which, I don't think I need to tell you this, but this is a one-off. Never to be repeated again. She came from the man. But at the same time, every single man who has ever walked on the face of the earth, other than Adam, gets his origin from a woman. Verse 12, so man is now born of woman. So there's this beautiful interdependence here between men and women, not only biologically, but functionally as well. And I... I just want to say to the ladies of this church, ladies, you have an essential role. You have a very important role. I, I think categorically, there is perhaps no more influential person on planet Earth than a Christian mother who raises their children in the gospel. Without question. She is the most significant influence in a person's life. And I, I think we will find in heaven the staggering number of God's elect who are there and brought to faith in Christ due in large part to the influence of a godly mother. Man comes from woman. You have an essential role, ladies. But then, notice in verses 13 to 15, he gives one final argument before we look at some application. He says in verse 12, let me back up. This is, I just want you to see this. This is from God, he says. Meaning, this is good. This is, this is God's design. Satan wants to take it and twist it. This is God's good order. This is God's good design. He's designed us differently, but he's designed us interdependently. Okay, third argument. The pattern of nature. The pattern of nature. Verses 13 to 15. And just when you think it gets easier, he returns now to his emphasis on head coverings. So he's circled back to his main point of this argument here. But notice he appeals now to the natural order. Even the natural order revealed in cultural customs. And so he asks the Corinthians, notice in verse 13, to judge for themselves by examining nature and very strangely, by examining hair length. Have you thought much about hair length? I'll be honest. I thought more about hair length this week than I ever have in my life. So verse 13, look what he says. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? So he returns now to head coverings assuming the answer to the question is now self-evident. And he wants them to consider, is it right, is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? And where does Paul turn? Verse 14. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her as a covering. So verse 13, he asks, okay, Corinthians, what's proper? Judge for yourselves. And he wants them to consider how nature itself and how every culture in the world marks out men and women 
visibly. And one of those markers, one of those indicators is hair length. In fact, have you thought about this? I wonder if we were to go around the world, I don't know if you could put this in a percentage, that's probably not very helpful, but if we were to go around the world, I think probably my guess is that in almost every culture you would see that men have short hair and women have long hair. And Paul says that natural instinct should reveal to you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace, verse 14. But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, verse 15. Now, let me be very clear. I do not think Paul is saying it is wrong for men to have long hair. Nor do I think he's saying it is wrong for women to have short hair. Otherwise, every newborn baby girl I've ever seen would be in sin. I'm not talking about original sin. I'm talking about she's sinning. Because the ones I've seen, they come out with short hair. Same would be true of a woman who her hair falls out. That's not what he's talking about. The, the emphasis isn't on the hair length. But on what is perceived, even culturally, to be masculine and to be feminine. And in Paul's day, apparently, it would be considered feminine for a man to have long hair, and it would be considered masculine for a woman to have short hair. And he says, nature teaches you this. Nature doesn't teach you how long hair should be. Culture teaches us that some way, what's culturally acceptable, hair length for men and women. But nature teaches that Men ought to look like men, and women ought to look like women. And our culture gives us certain symbols of masculinity and femininity that we should embrace. And I don't know about you, but it is getting harder and harder to tell. And I'm not talking about babies. I'm talking about adults. Man, woman. So the most important thing here, without question, is God wants men to look like men, and he wants women to look like women. However, what that looks like physically is going to vary from time to time and from culture to culture. But it is important that we do not blur, we do not mix, we do not blend these gender distinctions created by God. That's his third and final argument. And he says, this is the practice in all the churches, verse 16. And again, to go against nature, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, this church is the suppression of the truth in unrighteousness. This is a rejection of God himself. So these are the three arguments he gives. So let's see if we can't take that now, this timeless principle and apply it to our own cultural context today. So how do we apply this passage? Should women still be wearing head coverings in corporate worship? And I think the answer clearly is no. Although some may feel compelled to do so, and that is just fine, if your conscience tells you that's what you need to do. But again, it is very important here that we distinguish between the underlying timeless principle and how we apply that principle today. And Paul's main concern in the Corinthian context was that women wear head coverings in worship as a symbol of their submission to male leadership in the home and in the church as she worships. So what's the application? Well, let me just say this, number one. Because some of you are like, wow, this is confusing. Some of you, maybe this is your first time visiting today. You're like, what in the world is going on at this church? So let me say this. The most important thing that can be said about this passage is that what you believe about head coverings and whether or not you have long hair or whether or not you have short hair or whether or not you are a man or you are a woman, it cannot save your soul. No, 
The most important thing you could say about this text is that you are a sinner who is in need of salvation. And nestled right there in verse 3 is this glorious gospel reality that because Christ submitted himself to the will of the Father and he went to the cross, you and I as rebels now can be forgiven of sin and have eternal life. That's the most important thing about this text. You see, all of us, None of us like authority, do we? Men don't want to submit to governing authorities. Women don't want to submit to their husbands. Children don't want to submit to their parents. We don't like authority. But the biggest problem is that we have rejected God's authority. And yet Jesus submitted himself to his Father. And he died in our place willingly to bear the wrath of God, and so I would say to you this morning, come to Christ. That's the most important thing I can say about this text. You are a sinner who is in need of salvation, and Christ alone is that Savior. And right there in verse 3, the head of, every, of Christ is God. That's the glorious unfolding plan of God to rescue sinners. Praise God that Christ willingly went to the cross in obedience to his Father's plan. Here's the second thing I would say, though. Gender differences matter. Gender distinctions matter. You see, the Corinthians were in danger of blurring that, distorting that. But Paul says, they matter. And beloved, I don't know if I need to tell you this, those differences are under attack today. In fact, just this past week, I was reading a story about a school that is now forbidding teachers from referring to children as boys and girls. It is under attack. This is the world that you live in now. And the church must continue to lift up and celebrate God's good design for men and women. And that men are men and women are women and friends, we need to continue to tell our gender-confused culture the truth. And that's going to take a lot of boldness. That's going to take a lot of courage. But it is the absolute most loving thing you could possibly do. They matter. Here's the third application. We must embrace, church, our femininity ladies, and our masculinity, men. We must embrace it. In fact, we must delight in it. And so men of the church, you must embrace your masculinity. You must own what it means to be a man. And you must raise your boys to be men who will one day take the lead in the home, and in the church. And you should teach your boys to look like boys. And you should teach your boys to act like boys. And you should teach your boys and how they should treat women. And ladies, you must embrace your femininity. You must treasure it. You must, you must raise your daughters to delight in being feminine women who don't shrink back from that, who don't push that aside. They delight in these God-given roles and design and who are going to be submissive to their own husbands and they're submit to godly male leadership in the church. We must embrace it. And we must teach that both are equal. Equally made in the image of God. Equally redeemed by the blood of Christ. Equally adopted. Equally gifted in unique ways to serve within the church. We must embrace it. Our femininity, ladies, our masculinity, men. Finally, last application. I think this passage would also teach us the importance of men visibly leading the church. A clear, visible male leadership. And that one of the aspects, one of the marks of a healthy church is when men take the lead. 
Male leadership was established in the created order, as we've seen, and it must be visibly seen in the church as well. In fact, that's Paul's point here. So for him and for his culture, this meant head coverings. So what might it look like in our culture? What might it look like in our church today? Well, allow me to start with the easy one. This means that we desire in this church and in our corporate church gatherings that men are clearly leading. Men who are preaching, men who are serving as elders, men who are teaching, men who are leading. So that if an outsider were to come into this building, they would see visibly men are leading. And so the principle here is that men should clearly be men leading in the church, and women should clearly be leading in submission to that godly male leadership within the church. So does that mean then that women have absolutely no role to play in the corporate gathering of the church? Well, absolutely not. No. In fact, look there in verse 5. The women in verse 5 are praying and prophesying in the corporate gathering. They're involved. Well, you say, what about 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, where women should keep silent in the churches? Well, I'm going to talk about that next time. But he's not talking about total silence. He's talking about a certain kind of silence. Don't take it out of context here. No. He's not rebuking the women for praying and prophesying in the corporate gathering. He's only rebuking that they're doing so without their heads covered. So women are participating in corporate worship. He's not forbidding them from that. But he does insist that in their participation, they should evidence, even visibly, a demeanor and a posture of submission to male leadership. They have a role to play. Now, here's the difficulty. Here's the difficulty. I told you a few weeks ago, your elders are 100% unashamedly, totally complementarian. I, I hope that's clear to you now. Right? I've argued that for weeks. I hope it's clear. And we will talk more pro practically in two weeks about many of the significant and important roles that women can do and how they can serve in the church. But let me ju just allow me to say very transparently that while the elders are fully complementarian, we honestly have some differences on exactly how that gets fleshed out in the details within the corporate life of the church. And specifically, I mean the corporate worship gathering. Can women sing? Can women pray on stage? Can women read scripture? Can women give testimonies? Can women lead in songs? Well, obviously, we're okay with some of those things, right? Women giving testimonies, you heard that today. Women singing, you heard that today. Reading scripture even. But we, we may have some other things that we aren't in total agreement on. We aren't all comfortable with, which I think is okay. And we know that many of you have concerns about it, and you don't all agree either. And so I guess what I want you to hear me say this morning in representing the elders is that we want to be faithful to the Bible. And we also don't want to hinder the women of our church from serving in the many ways that the Bible allows them to serve. You see what I'm saying? And so I guess what I'm asking is that you pray for us. You pray for us as we lead. You pray that our church would accurately and biblically God-honoring ways reflect these gender differences and roles because we want to lift high the important role that men play in the church, and we want to lift high the important role that women play in the church as well. And we want to do it all for the glory of God. Let's pray. 
We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.